Julian Pensavale, Patrick Hines, How appropriate that we're in the world famous <laughs> Ripley Greer. We normally record at my house, but my family, my daughter, and my husband are so, so, so sick. You sent me the saddest picture of I know. all time. They were like crumpled on top of each other this morning. I was like, girls, I gotta work. What oh. was it? Bad pork, we think? <laughs> we think it might be Ooh. bad pork. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. That is so, that really, like, my heart is like aching. It's that's, awful. that's the worst thing. I in the just world. called to check in on them, and he's like, I feel awful. Oh, and that's the thing, like, even if you're sleeping, you're not resting. I know. Like when you're no. that sick, your I body's know. just like, I can't make it's it. It's the like, worst. Aww. But I feel fine. Hey. <laughs> Girl, I wanted to say, you guys, so this Asian McLean interview that we did that's oh. live on the Patreon feed, people are loving it. It's a really great interview. I wanted to tell you, like, we've been tweeting with Asia since we did the interview. We're like friends now. She's coming to New York next month. We're getting together. But you guys, big breaking news. One of the things that Jillian pointed out in one of the serial episodes is that Asia McLean's boyfriend, the one who picked her up from the library and also, like, back in the day, corroborated that they had seen Adnan that day. When Sarah Koenig finds him in the episode, he, like, doesn't know who she is. Yeah, he makes this joke, and he's like, what is that, like, a book? Asia like, McLean, is that a book or a person? So, in the wake of our interview with Asia, Rabia was tweeting about what a great interview it was, and how, like, oh, Asia, I wish you had said that that had been a joke that Sarah had edited to make it sound serious. Asia totally got involved and was like, yeah, that was, I gave Sarah Koenig their contact information. That's how she found them. And the point of all of this is that some people don't believe Asia specifically because this boyfriend person didn't remember her in the episode. Right, air quotes didn't remember her. And so we now know that was a joke, that it was, he actually said like, just kidding, and Sarah Koenig edited it. The point is, you guys, Asia McLean and Rabia both, we do interviews with them separately. They both spill <sighs> the cereal tea. The interviews are live now on our Patreon feed. Go check them out, where you can also find our complete coverage of cereal. We're up to episode three in The Staircase. Uh. Episode three is kind of like a laugh riot comedy. <laughs> the Staircase 3, the squeakle. <laughs> They're all going to have different... La- yeah, last week was Staircase 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, exactly. But today's the, the squeakle. I don't know what's going to come next week. I haven't decided yet, but yeah. every, there's 13 more that I have to figure out, so stay tuned, everybody. Girl, what are we doing today? We're doing the Central Park 5. People have been asking for this since we started this podcast. I don't know why. I do. It's it's Ken Burns. It's a heartbreaking story. It's a story yeah. that needs to be told. But oh man, is it two hours of just heartbreak? It's total heartbreak. You guys, breaking news. <laughs> We're recording in a studio today. I forgot the hero bell and the and the garbage bell. Yeah. So it's gonna be a lot of ding 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 ding. We're just gonna say it out loud today. Oh, no, no, that's, that's where the bell work. should be. It's not going to work. Just say ding, ding, ding like the old days. Yeah. Remember yeah. ding, ding, ding like the old I, days? I do. Maybe I'll, I'll, fa- I'll mime the bell. Remember when <laughs> I did that one time? I don't remember. You saw it. I didn't even know I did it. I want us to remember what happened that day and be horrified by ourselves. New York in the late 1980s was a completely schizophrenic, divided city. New York's now the capital of racial violence. If I had more bullets, I would have shot them all again and again. Criminality, gang wars, drug wars. We were supposed to be afraid. It would have been irrational not to be afraid. Off with the camera, man! Last night, a woman jogger was found unconscious and partially clothed in Central Park. She was beaten and sexually assaulted. A woman jogging in Central Park. 
Central Park was holy. It was the crime of the century. Five youths were arrested at 96th Street, all between 14 and 15 years of age. They got him! You can only imagine the pressure to have this crime solved and solved quickly. First, we was all together. Then they started to put us in different rooms separately. What did you do? Who were you with? Who did you come with? The tone was very scary. I felt like they might take us to the back of the precinct and kill us. You're not going to go home until you give up a story. I told my son, go to the park that night. I feel guilty. I'm telling the guy, I don't know what you're talking about. They're getting a little angry. And they're like, you know, you did it, didn't you? He had been interrogated for over 24 hours. That amounts to pressure. These young men were guilty. It was almost unquestioned. The police controlled the story. They created the story. They seized on the fears of the people. Wilding, the bestial characterization of the black man. There's no DNA match whatsoever to any of these boys. I was going nuts. No blood on the kids. Nobody could identify them. But if they confessed, they confessed, and that was that. A lot of people didn't do their jobs. Reporters, police, prosecutors, defense lawyers. This was institutional protectionism. We falsely convicted them, and we walked away from our crime. This is the ultimate siren that says none of us is safe. All right, get us started, girl. All right, well... On the night of April 19th in 1989, a jogger was brutally beaten and raped in New York's Central Park around the Upper East Side. Yeah. And five teenagers were convicted of the crime. And in two hours, we'll learn what why they were convicted. The garbage cops of yeah. the... It, you guys, this is like Brendan Dassey from Making Murderer, Jesse Miss Kelly, and yeah. the West Memphis Three. Classic garbage cops. Classic garbage cops being like, well, we need... This is a horrible, horrible crime. Yeah. We need to pin it on somebody. How about those dudes? They look <laughs> a little not like us. It's, it's the same. We've heard it all before. It doesn't make it any less garbage or heartbreaking. But that's... That's what we do here. The really crazy thing, too, is that the right after we get the on-screen text saying what happened and that right. these boys have been convicted, we get, like, not even a minute into this documentary, we get the actual confession of the actual person who actually did it. I saw them when she made a turn. I saw the way I picked up a tree branch and down the road where I stroke over the head with a tree branch. The point is that this is not a documentary about who did it, who did it, who did it. No. This is a documentary about five black kids being wrongfully convicted. Right. And Ken Burns makes it a point to say right at the beginning, uh, the police declined to be involved. Usually that's at the end of a documentary. garbage prosecutors with a horrible perm. Oh, God. What's Liz Bitterer or whatever Whatever. the fuck? Fuck her. Dang. Whatever. um, But I love that because usually that's at the end. Remember like Fantastic Lies? It's like here's a long list and it just kept scrolling like the flowers thing. Do you ever know Notice too, I, I loved this in this documentary that like every time they had to talk about somebody who would refuse to be interviewed, they would find the worst like black and white evil looking, and there'd be that like whoosh yeah. like underneath it. Oh yeah, to like just drive it home that home perm prosecutor is totally evil. I hope and you're also, e- 
evil prosecutor, if you have something to say, you had every chance to be it's involved. True. You were asked to be involved and tell your side of the story, and now we're just going to use a shitty picture of you. I'm so, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. And in fairness, with that home permit, you'd be hard-pressed to find a good one. I mean, it was 1989, but still, no excuses. <laughs> But that that statement in the beginning of the movie is chilling, where he's like, no, no, I'm the one who did this. And you're like, oh, my God. I know. God. I know. It's I know. really scary. It, it is. It's, it is really. And you're like, oh, that's what a real confession sounds like. Right. Everyone, law enforcement, <laughs> that's what a real confession sounds yeah, like. Yeah, 100%. Right. When the kids, like, don't know the time, the day, the place, the right. year, yeah. the temperature. When their story starts in the morning and it ends with you saying, do you think it was maybe around 10 o'clock at night? And they're like, sure. Can I go home now? Right. That's not a real confession, you guys. I don't care. If it's videotaped or not, a real confession is is a guy saying, "No, no, no. Here's what happened. Here's the kind of shoes I was wearing, and it was right. this time, and I did it." I don't care if it was. Videotaped. And usually they don't have a soul. You right. should check their eyes. <laughs> check the eyes. If they're dead, probably did it. Yeah. So here we go again yeah. with you guys. We can pull this from any of the 50 movies we've done about New York City in the 1980s. Oh. We get a montage of how bad New York City was. In the 1980s. Some stock video company just has to make like a <laughs> shitty New York City montage. Yes. And then everyone can just use that. It's a waste of time and resources and like PAs rifling through stock footage. Like someone just got to make one. This one's a little bit more focused on race, on like the racial divide in New York City between like the races. I guess that's what a racial divide it, is. That, yeah, no, that sounds about right. New York's now the capital of racial violence. I am! You want to use a gun, we'll use the gun. None of us is safe. Even if you lock yourself behind doors. There's now a new level of random violence in this city. It's intolerable, and this city will rise up in its wrath against those who perpetrate monstrosities. I did appreciate that this was the one movie about New York being bad in the 80s that did not use that stock Getty image of the black and white TV floating in the Hudson River. (laughs) No, but they did use the one of the the building that looked like like a big cannon just went off inside it. And I actually made a note that this one (laughs) had really... floating. (laughs) This one had really good uh, pictures of terrified white people on the subway. I was just going to say the subway. And of course they were in color. The pictures were in color. Totally. Um, Just graffiti for days. Graffiti for days. And you see these kids like breakdancing and then it cuts to these two white people, this like young white couple who look like they're off the boat from Nebraska. Hey, Nebraska, we love you. Right, right, right. I'm just saying, they look absolutely terrified. They're just every shade of beige. She's got the shoulder pans on. They're just a little... And then, they, but and they were talking about like it was just also, of course, like very violent. You guys, like yes. if if you haven't heard the news, New York City like hasn't always been the greatest place ever. Well, yes, it has, but it's gone through a rough patch. But they were talking about like the subway vigilante who stabbed somebody. This guy, and the quote was like, allegedly, the quote from one of his victims was apparently he was like, "Yeah, you don't look so bad." He is another, and then stabbed him again. I was like, "Oh my." God. And then you get this like dopey looking white Our guy. Are vigilantes supposed to be the good guys? <laughs> I think that's a misnomer. Or he was just stabbing someone who was doing a stab. Like I don't. They didn't really make that clear. Leave it to the cops. Please don't take the law into your own hands on the subway. But the, the quote of like, hey, you know, I didn't really get you good the first time. Here's <laughs> another stabbing. Like, oh my, oh my god. god, that's so that sound. I know. We're, I don't know what that. It's the, really it's all in the hand motion. Yeah. But then we get Garbage Mayor Ed Koch. Garbage Mayor Ed Koch is totally garbage for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Number Mostly because he was a total gay. A total lady mayor. Which and, would have not been garbage. Right. No, no, no that, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't immediately make you garbage. Yeah, don't turn off the podcast. There's more. There's just... 
But he was like not out, would never come out, was never going to be out. So he was horrible to the gays. Right. Everyone's because he go, didn't want to be, he didn't want to do anything nice for the gays because then people might say he was gay. Go watch A Normal Heart. Exactly. They cover it. And he was the mayor during the AIDS crisis. Like it's a terrible time to be a self-hating gay person who happens to be in charge of this city sure. where the epicenter of the disease is happening. Or it could have been a time for you to really be a champion. But Exactly. Hey, but hey. That's, a, that's hard. You know, you do you, Ed Koch. That takes work. Yeah. And like <laughs> reflection and introspection. Who has time? Who has time? The city, when I came in, uh, was on the edge of uh, bankruptcy and people thought we would not uh, recover. He was the mayor from 1978 to 1989. And then we get more about how like the school system was in collapse. The political system was failing everybody. Beautiful neighborhoods were falling apart. And the thing, though, that really made everything a whole hell of a lot worse is crack came along in 1984. Right. Crack has not ever been known to make things better. No. No. And so, like, they're explaining that, like, black and brown people were the target of drugs, so that now the target of the police. Most of the homicides were young, poor, working-class, black and brown kids. And the dominant social message was, no one cared if you lived or died. As far as I'm concerned, in the late 80s, in New York City, the black community was under assault. The most endangered species in America, that was a popular phrase, was the young black man. Okay, it's the night of the crime. It's Wednesday, April 19th, 1989. We're hearing about the night of the crime from the kids that would go on to be convicted for this crime. Right. So let's just say their names real quick. Okay. So it's Antron McGray, and we only hear his voice. Yeah. He's not on camera. Kevin Richardson, Yusef Salam, Raymond Santana Jr., and Corey Wise. Yeah. They lived in the housing projects, and it was a nice night. There was It was a holiday weekend. They didn't have school on Monday, and like one of the dads of one of the kids was like, just go to the park. They lived right at the north end of the park. So Central Park was kind of their backyard. Yeah. And basically what happened was like one group of kids was walking this way and one group of kids was walking this way and then like 25 or 30 kids all just sort of like entered the park together. Good kids and bad kids. Kids is out to have some fun. Some of them I didn't know by face. Some of them went to my school. Some of them lived in my neighborhood. Yusuf came my way. I see Corey, I said, hey, come and hang out. We're about to hang out in the park. Close friend of mine's, he stayed back. We was all playing basketball and he was like, don't go. Like, stay here. Next thing I know, we was going into the park. So now there are like 30 teenage boys. And when I say teenage boys, we're talking 14 to 17. Yeah. Actual teenage boys. Just like walking through the park together. You guys, we gotta be honest here. Some of them were just being awful. And people started throwing rocks at the cars. A couple, it was on a tandem bike, and some kids was harassing them or saying something to them. It looked like they were trying to pull them off and... A homeless person starts walking across the street, and the guys surround him. They were beating this guy up really badly, and at some point in time, someone poured out a beer bottle and then smashed him in the head with it. You know, it's kind of unbelievable. To see that and, and to see, like, this guy getting, you know, jumped on by all these teenagers. Beating up homeless people and taking their food. Beating up people, joggers who are running. Like, they, this they is not. This couple off a tandem bike. I know, like. I was like, wait, hey, who's the nerd that's riding a tandem bike in the north end of Central Park at, at like, 9 o'clock at night? I know. You're kind of asking for an ask. Uh, it's like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but the thing is, like, most of these boys 
were looking for trouble. They were harassing people. And it's like, and there it was it was bad stuff, yeah. you guys. And it was just like, I don't know, you're a kid. It's for it's like a mob mentality times a zillion when you're 14 years old and totally. you're bored and you're like, I don't know, man. Shit gets crazy. Um, so the cops break it up because it's like Hmm, I wonder what's going on over there with those 30 kids beating people up. And everyone was like, <laughs> the poor homeless guy is like, he poured my beer out. I know. <laughs> people are reporting these crimes. Like the white people are like, my my, my star is like yeah. pearl clutching. <laughs> so the cops are called. A car pulled up in front of me and two officers jumped out. And one grabbed me and, uh, um, and, uh, and I, when I turned back, the crowd scattered and everybody ran. Somebody told me to freeze. I would shoot. My fear even went up more, so I just kept running. One of the cops, he tackled me. All my clothes was just all dirty and muddy. And he had a helmet, and he swung it across my face. Right now, here's who the cops have in custody of the Central Park Five. Yeah. They have Kevin and Raymond and then three other teenagers. Yeah. And we don't know who, who they are. And they're terrified because, like, they're kids. And also, I just kept hearing your voice where it's like, where are the parents? Oh, I kept, I was screaming it in my brain. Where are the parents? Where are the parents? And spoiler, even when the parents show up, it's not that great. It doesn't go great. So what happens is at 1.30 in the morning, the jogger is discovered. The jogger was discovered about 1.30 in the morning by passersby. She was in the underbrush in the northern reaches of the park, and she was taken to Metropolitan Hospital. Her skull was fractured. She lost a good deal of her body fluids. She was virtually dead. This is just about the time these boys were uh, were going to be released from this Central Park precinct. Right. The kids were about to be released when a detective who realized the gravity of the injuries of the victim, called the precinct and said, hold on to those guys. And it was from that moment forward that everything plowed towards them. And the thing is, like, what happened to these kids is awful, and cops do this all the time, but it's not the craziest thing in the world. And somebody points this out, like, hang on a second, you've got this, like, these kids that were just raising literal hell in Central Park, beating people up unabashedly. Yeah. And you find this woman, not far from where these kids were, who's unconscious and has been raped, and, like... At the very least, you'd be doing the wrong thing to not find out if these kids were involved. Right, because what if they were and you let them go? Right. That's a nightmare. Yeah. So now, like they do, again, you guys, we've heard this all a zillion times. I promise you're not listening to a repeat of our podcast. It's just a thing that happens (laughs) often. Now they're just asking the kids what's happened as if the kids know. Different cops coming back and forth and one cop saying, well, we just heard that a woman was raped and beaten in the park. Now he says, what happened to the lady? And I'm saying, what lady? And he says, what do you mean, what lady? The lady who got raped in the park. I said, yeah, I was in the park. And I was, yeah, I was, you know, all around. But that I don't know about. What do you mean you don't know? You just, and I said, no, we never came across no lady. So we get, like, all these heartbreaking stories about how, like, Detective Gonzalez and Arroyo, they're just being scumbags to these kids and just, like, getting all up in their faces. Again, they're 14. Now Arroyo starts to yell at me, and then this guy pulls up a chair next to me. He starts to yell right in my ear. So I have Arroyo here yelling at me, blowing smoke in my face with a cigarette, and then I have this guy on my side, and he's yelling at me. And they're like, you know, you fucking did it. You fucking stuck your dick in her, right, didn't you? And I'm like, what are you talking about? His dick, nothing, and nobody. 
there's like all this footage of the kids in the precinct. I'm like, they look younger than 14 I half know, of them. I know. These kids look so little. And they're scared. They're not trying to play tough guy. They're just like, what the hell, man? Right. So now there's a lot of back and forth of who's picked up when and how many boys. What what we're talking about right now is the, the five are now in custody and they're, they've they've been convinced to confess. That That's where we are now. Hardigan sat down and he said, look, Ray, I know you didn't do anything wrong, but the other guys right now, they're in other precincts and they're saying that you did it. And they're telling me, well, you're not saying nothing, but these guys put your name in it. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. And he's like, well, this is why I'm here to help you because I know you didn't do anything. Here's what the cops do, just in a nutshell. They're basically leading them through confessions, which happens all the time, where the person, whoever you're speaking to at the moment, is the least involved. And they're having them name other people. Right. So, like, my story would be Patrick did this and this and this, and Steve did this, and Mike did this, or whatever. I just watched. I didn't do anything. I was just there. And your story would be all of us did it, and you just watched. Exactly. exactly. And so the kids aren't communicating, and that's what they're having everybody do. And then they they also did the most garbagey thing ever, where they're like, well, you you have to be a little involved or else no one's going to believe you. <laughs> and then he said, it got to be more believable. You know, Ray, people don't fully believe it if you just saw it. He said, where were you? And I said, I saw it from a distance. I was watching. He said, no, you got to be in it. Like, you have to be there. You can't just say you stood there. You have to say you stood there and right. handed someone a brick. Or I don't know, like something horrible. Like you have to give a little. And they're like, and then I can go home? Yes, then you yeah, can go yeah. home. So that's what they did to all these kids. And then when it comes to the parents, one of the attorneys is talking about how like, yeah, one of the kids had the parents there. And you're, I know at home you're thinking, why aren't the parents saying they want a lawyer? The reason is because of the setting and because of the way they're being treated by the police. And because of being overwhelmed by the situation, it doesn't even register in their mind. And let's be honest, a lot of these people can't afford to go through a legal battle. Right. The legal battle they ended up going through anyway. God, I hate everyone. Everyone's the worst. These boys were in custody and under varying degrees of interrogation for a range of 14 to 30 hours. And when you are stressed, when you are tired, When you are a juvenile and not fully mature and developed, you're thinking, right now, I just want this to stop. So then they get the videotaped confessions. And this is where Home Perm Letterer gets involved. Elizabeth Letterer? (laughs) All right. That is also like the waspiest name. Totally. Letterer? Would you have a tennis scholarship? Of course she did. (laughs) My name is Elizabeth Letterer. I'm an assistant district attorney in New York County. I'd like to ask you some questions about uh, a series of things that happened in Central Park on the night of April 19th of 1989. Before I do that, I'd like to uh, advise you of your rights with respect to statements you may make now, okay? So we're seeing the videotaped confessions now. And this one of the kids, this kid, Corey, he's sort of developmentally disabled. He mm-hmm. had a hearing disability when he was a kid that wasn't treated. I don't know why that made him yeah. a little bit developmentally disabled, but he is. Right. So we see his interview first. And what's so aggravating is that she reads him his Miranda rights. I know. I was shocked. I was actually shocked And she keeps that. saying, do you understand? Do you understand? You have the right to remain silent and to refuse to answer any questions. Do you understand? Yes, I do. Anything that you say can be used against you in court. Do you understand? Yes, I do. You have the right to consult a lawyer now before any questioning and have a lawyer present during any questioning. Do you understand? Could you please answer out loud? Yes. 
And he keeps saying yes. And I'm like, ask for a lawyer. I ask know. for a lawyer. I know. I know. It's crazy. And, and they just, they, these kids all think if they just do what they're told, then they'll get to go home. Yeah. And this is, I mean, they've been just browbeaten. Right. That's really the yeah. whole thing. And he, I was just like struck by this kid, Corey, because he's really struggling. They give him a Pepsi. And he, first he of all, he grabs for it. Well, it looks like he hasn't seen nutrition, water, food in 24 hours, which is probably true. Yep. And she keeps asking him these questions like, What's in that picture? It's her. Is that the woman that you saw? Yes. Is that sort of the way she looked when you saw her? Yes. That's right. Did you see anybody hit her with, with anything but their hands? He'll give the answer that he knows he's supposed to give, and then she'll stop and say, like, And I'm, I'm telling you, Corey, I don't want you to think that you have to say that, but I want to know what you saw that explains how she got so badly hurt. And we will hear later that, like, these confessions sound really real. And they really do. Even in watching him give the confession, it's not like Brandon Dassey, where it sounds made up. All of the kids sort of start doing this thing where they invent details to sort of, like, Uh as as though they're going to get bonus points. Oh, yes. That's totally it. Yeah. And I just kept thinking, I was like, wait, I know she's garbage, but she's giving, she keeps giving them outs. I did. See, Kevin. Pick up a, a hand rock, a small hand rock, and hit across the face with it. Are you just saying that because I no, am asking? Uh-uh, you? No, no. Why didn't you say it before? Huh? Why didn't you say it before? Yeah, I remember I, me taking a quick glance in the dark. I remember her picking up a rock from out the out the dirt. Yeah. And that's, it's not like Jesse Miss Kelly in the West Memphis Three where it's like, so Jesse, you would probably say, what time is it? Around 6.30, right? Right, right, right. So you right. showed up at this time and then Damien did this and because not that. The person who brought this kid, Corey, into the room for the taped video confession was the cop that just nailed down the story with him. And he's sitting in the room right. during the confession. Right. So they've just gone over it a hundred times and he's sitting there. So now this kid, Corey, is trying to please that guy. It's like the really screwed up version of the stage mom doing the moves next to the stage <laughs> or in the aisle. It's like the it's like the worst version of that ever. So now, like, they've all confessed, and now they're being held. Now there's a montage of the breaking news that's happening. They say about youths 11 yeah. times. There, there were as many as 25 youths terrorizing people in Central Park. And I'm like, all right. In New York City this morning, a jogger is fighting for her life after a brutal attack in Central Park. Eight suspects were arraigned this weekend, aged 14 to 17. Some of the young men told police they were just out wilding. Wilding is a word you won't find in Webster's. Wilding. New York City police say that's new teenage slang for rampaging and wolf packs, attacking people just for the fun of it. The district attorney's office says the teenagers have confessed. The spokesman said some of those confessions are on videotape. I don't know why. I don't know how. But someone taught one of these super white journalists the term wilding. Oh, my God. And now it's not wilding. It's wiling. It's like a slang term. Oh, I've never heard it. But it's not wilding. Of course, that's what they're they keep just saying. Like, wilding. These youths were wilding in Central Park. <laughs> now, now, wilding, if you don't know, is when teenagers go out in wolf packs and look for trouble. <laughs> And it's like, they're they're just, like, look, I don't know the exact term. I don't know the, the history of the term wilding, but I know there are no, like, 
14-year-old <laughs> kids in Upper Manhattan pronouncing it wild. It's like a fun slang. It's a casual, loose word, and I'm, it's wilding. Yeah, like you're and wilding also, like, I'm sorry, but, like, wolf packs is just, like, a loosely veiled racist term for gang. Like, that's what they're saying. Like, there are gangs right. in the park. And, they're, and what they're doing is they're sort of painting this picture of these violent, they're wilding, yeah, they're yeah, these yeah. wild animals, like, and it's just, like, you need to calm down. Although there were 25 kids and they raising hell in the park. They were pulling nerds off tandem bikes. <laughs> Again, if you ride a tandem bike in Central Park in 1989 at 10 o'clock at night, you're at looking 10, for an ass kicking. At 10 o'clock at night. And here's the thing. Now we have garbage Ed Koch come in. Yeah. And he's like, look, if the, cr- the crime's bad. Yeah. Anywhere the crime would be bad. But Central Park? She's like, hold my Cosmo. Central, Central Park. Park was holy. A woman jogging and Central Park. Central Park was holy. If it had happened anyplace else other than Central Park, it would have been terrible. But it would not have been as terrible. Is this Ed Koch's first day in New York <laughs> that he thinks that nothing bad has gone down in Central Park before 1989? Didn't he fucking see the Warriors or like pick up a news or pick up a newspaper anytime yeah. during the 70s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Rambles is a gay cruising area, guys. That's the joke. There. Oh, okay. Sorry, I talked right over you. <laughs> After, this is so ridiculous. Like, it's just there's all these, you know, the journalists and Ed Koch not knowing a goddamn thing about Central Park and all this craziness. <laughs> and, you know, the fancy, dancy cops yeah. from, like, the Upper East Side oh, thing. The day after the arrest, and this is another trope, you guys. Like, even in, like, West of Memphis, the cops are like, on a scale of 1 to 10, we nailed it. It was an 11. Like, yeah. that's how great we did this. The day after the arrest, the cops go to party it up at Elaine's. If you're Here's- not from New York, can you please explain to these people what Elaine's is? Look, I used to work at a dive bar that was right next to Elaine's. <laughs> Elaine's is this place where just, like, the fanciest fancies would go and, yeah. like, think that they're letting their hair down. Right. But they weren't. And it was just, like, a late night spot. Yeah. It's, of course, it's a restaurant. Of course, it's a restaurant closed. owned by a lady named Elaine. Like, yeah, of course, it's closed. Yeah. But for a time, it was like, oh, like can, let's see if we can get into Elaine's. Right. It was like you had to get into Elaine's, and you know, people had their tables. Right. And, all and so this the stuff. point is, it was like they thought that they had like the, the pressure was on the cops to get these perps and like lock this crime right. down and get it done, and they they felt like they had done that. There was a sense that this had been a home run. From a law enforcement standpoint. The day after the arrest. So much for innocent until proven guilty. Right. Thanks, guys. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Have another fucking dirty martini at Elaine's. All right. Hey, fucking queens, all queens. of you. So now we learn a little bit about the jogger, who actually yeah. gets like the ultimate hero bell. Totally. Her name is Trisha. Someone in the documentary says it Miley, but it's M-E-I-L-I. And the only reason that the documentarians say her name is by the time the movie had come out, she'd written a book. She wrote a book in 2003 called I Am the Central Park Jogger. And for a long time, she was just the Central Park Jogger. Although, oh, sorry, go ahead. Just because what happened to her was so traumatic. There was no indication that she would recover consciousness. For me, the one piece of information that just got me was her friends coming in to identify her and her being just beaten beyond recognition. And the only way that her friends could identify her was by a ring that she wore. So, and, you know, the narrative is like, you know, instantly they're guilty. And then there's a stupid clip of Queen Ed Koch. I'm not even calling her a queen. Lady Koch. Whatever. Yeah. In 1989 being like, you know, these kids. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. You have to say allegedly. When parents or grandmothers of some of these uh, alleged uh, perpetrators, we always have to say alleged because that's the requirement. You're goddamn right. It's the 
requirement. Why are you laughing about innocent until proven guilty? I know. Like, that is such a dangerous thing to do on a national platform. Are you ready for a garbage minute? Yes. Give us a garbage (laughs) minute. Girl, we need to break this up. Uh, All right. It's weird how the garbage minute can be the most horrible and the funniest thing all at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this this week's garbage minute is brought to you by the death penalty. (laughs) 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 You better believe that I hate the people that took this girl and raped her brutally. You better believe it. Trump put his money where his mouth is by taking out this full-page ad in four New York City newspapers. Bring back the death penalty. So in my notes, I just say, why the fuck am I looking at that guy in the White House? I don't know. What's his name? I, I don't even know. I'm not writing it down. So that guy in the White House is at the forefront of this pro-death penalty movement that happened after this case came out. Mind you, these are 14, 15, and 16. They're kids. They're yes. children. They're children. So this guy decides to take out an ad in the newspaper that is now very even more famous than Four it was. Four newspapers. Four news. Yeah, in the paper, I mean, like Full across the board. Ads. yeah. Yeah, about like how awful it, you know, bring back the death penalty, blah, blah, blah. Blah. Again, they're children. Uh, I don't know why he thinks he has a right to to have a goddamn opinion about any of this. Um, and then I think he like ran for something in some political space. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't know who he is. <laughs> and they were children, and that's the deal. Da 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 da. Remember democracy? <laughs> no. So this is where we get some awesome animation. You know I love good oh, animation in a documentary. You need a visual. And you guys, this is where like the case sort of should be blown wide oh, open. The case should have been over. Exactly. So what happens is this journalist from the New York Times talks about how the police are releasing a chronology of the night. The night that those kids went, quote, wilding and this jogger went jogging in the park. The newspapers love chronologies. We call them TikToks. We like to say, here's how this... Night of Terror unfolded in the park. We call them TikToks. TikToks, girl. <laughs> I can't wait to talk to a journalist and they're like, a what, what? Like, I, <laughs> I would love for that, for TikToks to not necessarily be a thing. Totally. But I also want it to Just be the biggest thing. The like, I want it to be someone like every, like, I want it to be something that every journalist can agree on, no yeah. matter what you work on. But I also want someone to be like, a what? The timeline says the kids did these attacks at this place with the homeless guy, at this place with the taxi driver, over there with the bicycle rider. Now, those people reported these things either simultaneously or right after to the police. So there is a clear-cut timeline. And what they do is they append to the end of this sequence of crimes the attack on the jogger. The police just sort of, like, added Trisha's whole thing at the end of it. Right. And the thing about Trisha is that at this point she's making excellent progress but one thing is she can't remember anything about that night. Right. So the times that the police are adding on to the TikTok, I sound so smart (laughs) when I say it, I know, is that it's just like what she usually did or what she would have done. Yeah. And with not necessarily absolute certainty but with a good degree of certainty you can figure out that Trisha Miley should have been in the park around the place where she was attacked at around 20 after 9. She was attacked at like 9.20, and they know exactly where the kids were at 9.20. Yeah, and they, they were, were beating up the homeless guy and dumping out the poor guy's beer. Right, like pulling she... Pulling the nerds off the tandem bike. <laughs> right. She was like in the north side of the park, and they were on the south side. Yeah. So the journalist, Jim Dwyer from the Times, is like, this should have been a gigantic red flag. Right. And if you watch the videotaped confessions, 
it turns out they actually don't know where the crime took place. They don't know when it took place. And they don't know how it took place. They just know that it happened. But you know what they do definitely know? Oh, God. The DNA comes back, you guys. There's not an ounce of DNA from any of these kids on the victim. And there's there's unknown DNA on the victim, but it does not match any of the actual kids that are now have been accused of this crime. Weird. Um, you know who feels personally attacked by that? Who? Elizabeth Letterer. Yeah. She's like, these kids confessed. Right. And now there's no DNA. But the decision was we can still prosecute this case. And the argument we will make to the jury is just because we didn't get all of them doesn't mean we didn't get some of them. They now created a scenario by which there is a sixth perpetrator, a sixth perpetrator who mysteriously doesn't appear in any of the confessions. The sixth person is in zero of the confessions. It's just bullshit. Which means that the confessions are now completely inaccurate and should be thrown out. Exactly. But guess what? This shit goes to trial, you guys. <laughs> this is what, it would be a documentary if there was a happy ending. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So now we learn that there's like this. This is really gross and, and horrible, you guys. But where the jogger was attacked, she was attacked and then like dragged somewhere. Yeah. So according to the photos, there was this like 18 inch wide trail showing where, where the she'd body- been dragged off the jogging path. That trail was a photograph of the beginning of this attack. And in that picture, there are not five kids. There are only two people, the victim and her assailant. Which means that she clearly that it was it was one person. It yeah. was like the invisible sixth guy. So then it turns out that in the summer of 1989, when this was happening, there just happened to be a serial rapist attacking oh. people on the Upper East Side. <laughs> and two days before... He had raped someone else. Right. In the park. Two days before the attack in the park. Yeah. Yeah. His name is Matias Reyes. On April 17th, 1989, just two days before the jogger was attacked, he attacked a woman on the northern part of Central Park. But the woman noticed that he had fresh stitches on his chin. And she told the police about this. And a young detective went to the hospitals in the area and found out that there had been a guy named Mateus Reyes who had, who had these stitches on his chin. That was ignored. And he did it. And now we're starting to like hear him confess. Right. This is what a confession is, you guys. It is absolutely chilling. Right. I said to do, get undressed. When she was coming towards me, I picked up the knife. And I shut the knife. And I caught her hair. When she said, ah, oh, you stabbed me. I don't even what. I kept on stabbing her, and I don't know in what places I got it. I see her on the floor, shaking and everything. So I run out the door. So now we're getting to the trials, and going into the trial, everyone knew that the DNA didn't match. Everybody, the prosecution, the defense, um, and the forced confessions were the only real evidence. That's the only thing they were going on. There were no scratches. There was right. no DNA. There were no footprints. It's just these taped confessions. And it happens all the time. They explain how, like, confessions will ruin everything, especially, like you were saying, like, it doesn't seem like they're making it up. It doesn't seem forced. She says on the tape, do you want a lawyer? Like, right. ten times. It's- Sounds real. 
So when you have these confessions, it's like, yeah, DNA isn't there, but why would these five kids say that they did this brutal thing if they didn't really? Like, well, maybe, I don't know why the DNA isn't there, but five of them are saying the same thing, kind of, but not really at all. (laughs) And they also don't include this now mystery sixth guy. Right. And so so the first trial is Antron, Youssef, and Raymond are all tried together in June of 1990. And even though Trisha can't remember anything, she thinks it's 1952, the prosecution is like, well, we'll just parade her around in the courtroom to show people how badly she was beaten. It doesn't matter if she can't speak. It it doesn't matter if she can't remember anything. It doesn't matter if these kids didn't do it. She walked with an unsteady gait, clutched the railing as she stepped into the witness stand. Her scars were evident, but she spoke clearly in a strong, sweet voice. She was a miracle now at this point. She couldn't contribute anything to the actual case because thankfully she couldn't remember. But... The fact of her being on the stand galvanized the public around her and against these young boys. And the cops are standing there and lying through their teeth and they're like, you guys, happy hour to Lanes starts in like seven <laughs> minutes. I can't really, they did it. I don't know. That one did. And right. the other one. And then the other four. I don't know. And the sixth guy. I don't know what to tell you, but like they did it and we have to get to Elaine's. And <laughs> I, that, like, that's really my priority right now. I, I just must get the two Elaine's. And then we like hear from some juror who was like, oh, the cops were bullshit. But those confessions though, that was really hard to... No, and I'm like, dude, how do you? So the first trial ends basically because the guy who was like the first, the only guy who believed in reasonable doubt, right. he was tired. He's what, like the one that... juror that was holding out, and it's so heartbreaking because you're like, these kids' lives could have been so different if you had just like stuck to what you knew to be true. I I was going nuts, quite frankly. I mean, everyone was blaming the fact that we were there so long on me, and I had to fight with my fellow jurors to consider the discrepancies between the three statements, but it didn't matter to them. If they confessed, they confessed, and that was that. Everyone's hurling imprecations at me and telling me what a rat I am. And I just went along with it at the end because, frankly, I was wiped out. I found some calculated excuse to vote guilty just to get out of there. Poor guy. He's tired of the whole thing. Guess what? I can think of five other people who are also really exhausted. But he says, he goes, I was tired and I just thought up some like cockamamie excuse that they did it and I yeah. voted guilty. First of all, cockamamie? Ding, 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 ding. I know. <laughs> who said, there's probably some awful like origin of that. Of cockamamie? Yeah, there's gotta be. Somebody put it in the Facebook group, you guys. Yeah, it's gonna be like cockamamie. It's like, it's probably gonna be the purest thing. <laughs> Whatever, this guy's garbage. He was tired and wanted to go home. I don't wanna hear it. So then they, they all like get found guilty. All this horrible, horrible stuff. They're sobbing together. And then there's this footage of stupid bitch, aka this bitch. I can't believe I haven't pulled that one out yet. Uh, Liz Letterer is, she's like, I feel so great. I could really use a vacation. How do you feel about the prospect of another trial? I think I could use a vacation before this. Are you going to give it to her? I'm going to give it to her. Like what, you got to go to the Cape, Liz? I grew up in the Cape. I know. It's not that nice, Liz. Go there. You're garbage. What's go like a, a super waspy? She's got to go to Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> Liz, what are you late for your tennis match? <laughs> she loves a tandem bike, I'll tell you. Liz. <laughs> Liz, get That's out of here. That's what really got stuck in her craw was that they, pull, they had the audacity to pull somebody off a tandem bike. Can she, you believe she it? She rides those. <laughs> 
In Martha's Vineyard. Her and her partner, Deb, ride them every weekend. Hey, her yoga instructor, how dare you? They're just very good friends. <laughs> and roommates. And roommates. And cat lovers. And cat lovers. And they just happen to be on the same softball team. <laughs> and they home perm each other's hair. How dare but you? They are just very good friends. How dare you make these assumptions, my good ma'am? Also, <laughs> Deb teaches gym, whatever. She's athletic. She's an athlete. I I'll know. have you know. <laughs> Arms and shoulders for days. They distract Liz from her paperwork, but that's none of your concern. So Antron, Youssef, and Raymond were each found guilty on seven counts, including rape and assault and all these horrible things. But because they were underage, they were sentenced to five to ten years, which was the maximum allowed by law. So someone realized these were children. At one point, yeah. someone was like, these are kids. Right. So then, you guys, there's the second trial for the, for the other two accused. Kevin and Corey. Kevin and Corey. I'm horrendous with names. They get the same outcome, except for the, that Corey gets a longer sentence because he's 16 years old and he gets sent to goddamn Rikers. I'm sorry, you can't vote until you're 18. I know. How does 16 mean that you're tried as an adult? I know. I know that, like, depending on the case, like, I think the Slenderman girls were tried as, I think there was, like, an issue with that. Well, it's state to state. So it's yeah. just, like, whatever garbage state decides that an eight-year-old is an adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> God. It's true, though, that happens. I know. I'm laughing because if I don't, I will set myself on fire and cry because I can't believe the world in which we live. I know. So they all go to jail. None of them ever get into trouble, but they never get paroled because they won't they won't acknowledge that they committed the crime. Right. And in order to get parole, you have to show remorse for the crime. And they, they, all of them are like, we didn't do it. We're going to stay here. Yeah. And I'm sure they were like, I think this is really horrible, but I didn't do it. Like, that doesn't even count. So every eventually they all get out except for Corey. Corey stays in jail because he's in grown-up jail. <sighs> he's in grown-up prison. He's at Rikers. But at Rikers, he has an, an encounter with Mateus Reyes. Right. Who, if you guys remember, he was like the East Side Rapist. They called him the Upper East Side Rapist. Yeah. He raped someone two days before Trisha. Right. And was arrested on the 5th. And Mateus Reyes... Apparently, he and Corey had had some altercation over the television at some other jail they were both at. Yeah. And so they see each other. Mateus Reyes apologizes. He said, I would like to apologize to you. you know, we, we had a fight, Rikers Island, about the TV, so forth. So we said, it ain't about nothing, man. <laughs> we had. <laughs> it's not going to free neither one of us. Don't worry about it. Corey is like, girl, what are you talking about? He's like, go, he's like, we're in prison. Like, I could say sorry, but does it, is it going to get me out of here? Like, who cares? And then Mateus Reyes has, like, a, a crisis of conscience and just, like, goes and finds the nearest warden is like, oh, remember that horrendous rape of that woman in Central Park that this guy's in jail for? I did that. That was me. And the other four kids lost however many like years of their lives. years of their lives. And no one can get jobs. And they're right. on the sex offender list. Yeah, and no, their I lives did are that. Over. That was me who did that. Reyes doesn't say anything to him. But he starts talking to people in the prison. Hey, I met somebody who's doing time for a crime that he didn't have anything to do with that I did myself. They send up an investigator and takes this statement. They send it down to the Manhattan DA's office, which has no idea that this case from 13 years earlier, which has long been stored and forgotten by everybody except the people involved, is suddenly going to come back to life. Really, she sings like a canary. High-pitched vibrato. She is singing. Because the minute she opens her mouth, everyone's like, 
what? And then suddenly, because now you guys, it's been long enough that they're sort of like, the prosecutor's the new class. They're yeah. kind of like, oh shit. Like they don't care about any of this. Like sometimes when that, it, like when a case is around long enough and there's new blood involved and there are new people, someone looks at the case and they're like, what the fuck is this? How did this even happen? Right, exactly. So someone, thank God, was like, wait, this guy's confessing and someone, there are people who were in prison who shouldn't have been. I should pick up the phone. Right. So they do and they're like, the investigator's like, there's an investigator shaped <laughs> hole in their, in their office and they get right up to Rikers and he's like, no, 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 I did, I totally did it. Would you like to know how I did it? I showed her the top of the entrance, the direction she came by. I showed her where I picked up the tree branch and down the road where I dragged the end. Yeah, and he and had like, all this guess. information that only the actual attacker would know. Uh-huh. He described her as having black uh, running tights on and a white T-shirt. That's what that's what Miss Mealy was wearing. He tells them about the Walkman. Turns out she did run with a Walkman. Nobody knew it because it wasn't found at the scene. He describes how he took off her sneakers. Uh, her, when the police came on the scene and they found her... Her sneakers were, were, were one sneaker was in one location, another sneaker was in another location. He talked about taking her keys and trying to get her address and then tossing the keys. Well, that explained the dilemma about where her key was because her door was locked. He's also like being a little self-righteous <laughs> for a rapist. He's like, look, you know, when, if someone doesn't do the right thing, right. they have to do it. And I'm like, right. you, you're... You're you're like a serial rapist, <laughs> and you like beat people almost to death. You're like an actual. You're like the yeah, scum of the actual earth. Monster. I don't need your self righteousness. But thanks for like thanks. coming forward now. I guess something you should have done a zillion years ago. And it just it ends with their like their convic- their convictions get vacated because the DNA that they never that didn't match any of the five matched Reyes. Of course, obviously it did. <laughs> you guys are so. We should have just been cops. I know. We and should. lawyers. Hey, it's never too late. We could totally go to the Cop Academy right now. Apparently, that's like a weekend course. So you don't even have to take that seriously. Yeah, let's be cops for the weekend. Let's learn how to be a cop for the weekend. That makes actual total sense in this day and age. I just said in this day and age. That's how it ends. It Basically, we get this like 15 minutes at the end about how everybody talks about how everybody did everything wrong. Right. Um, and then, like, the beautiful stories of, like, it's the best Christmas ever because these kids realize, like, in late December that everything's going to be overturned. They don't have to be on the sex offender list. and But there's still this thing of, like, you know, they were robbed of all these years. They don't really have skills. They have, like, like, like no social skills in the sense where they have PTSD and, like, it's hard to have a conversation because they're watching the room because they were teenagers at Rikers or right, wherever they exactly. were. like. You know, they just have they have a lot to to go through and change, but like Jesus Christ, man, everyone else other than them is the worst. <laughs> Girl, we got through the Central Park Five. How did we not finish all the wine? I don't know. How do I still have so much left? <laughs> you guys, you asked for it. You got it. I gotta say that was that was rough. Like that was hey man, rough. That was that was tough. So let's get back to the fucking kooky shit. What are we gonna do next week? Ooh, wild, wild country. <laughs> I ju- I'm sorry, I just heard everybody screaming with delight. <laughs> you guys, we hear you. So you guys, six episodes of Wild Wild Country. We're gonna do it in three yeah. on the regular TCO feed. You guys, three weeks of Wild Wild Country. <laughs> mm. I know we made you wait for it, but I hey, know it's I'm excited. I haven't wait really seen it. it. I've only seen the first episode, so I'm very excited to talk about it. Oh, tough titties. <laughs> that was for you, Facebook group. I see you. 
Um, girl, where can they find us? They can find us at Ripley Greer in, on 8th <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> at True Crime Obsessed on the Twitter and truecrimeobsessed.com. And that's where you can find our schedule and our episodes and where you can click become a patron and join our Patreon party. You guys, if you want to hear our interviews with Asia McLean, Robbie Achaudry, our episode-by-episode coverage of Serial, our other bonus episodes, all commercial-free, find us at patreon.com slash truecrimeobsessed. Uh, where can they find you, girl? At Jillian with a G on all the things. I'm at Patrick Hines underscore on the Instagram. I'm at Patrick Hines on the Twitter. You guys stay tuned for the preview for Wild Wild Country, followed by our hilarious and sexy outtakes. I don't know how sexy they're going to be this time around, but I, I like where your head's at. And this week, our palate cleanser is from Annie. Don't ask. You'll understand when you hear you'll it. You'll get it right away. <laughs> uh, we love you, and we'll see you soon. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Everybody felt they were there at the beginning of the great experiment. Like we were the chosen people. <laughs> I'm here in one of the largest ranches in the Northwest. Today, it's Rajneesh Purim, because a prominent Indian guru and his followers bought it. Our vision was to create a community based on compassion and sharing. Bhagwan's agenda was simply to raise the consciousness of humanity. That was his goal. America was land of promise. It was my conviction we will have no problems. I don't think America has a place for these people. Everyone in Antelope mistrust Rajneesh. I want that guru and his evil influence out of my city. They're run by satanic power. There is talk of vigilantes who may seek revenge on the Rajneeshis. A bomb went off in the middle of the community. More than 60 followers evacuated. It was a catastrophe. Mostly unjust, terrified. If I didn't take measures to protect our community, no one else would do it. We call upon the governor to disarm this cult's army now. If the government does decide to get you, they're going to get you. Who would poison a whole town? The Rajneeshi set a stage for a big outbreak to influence the election. They had no evidence. They were facing immigration fraud, smuggling. The Rajneeshis came this close to murdering a presidential appointee. There is bias, there is prejudgment, religious discrimination. And this is democracy. I've had enough of it. We were going to mount a full-scale assault. We will be ready to protect ourselves. Grown up understanding, thou shalt not kill. What had happened? There's darkness in all of us. Doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> Rabia texted me today and said, are you guys coming to, right now is podcast movement. Yeah. Are you guys coming? And I was like, no, we're supposed to be there, but my family's sick and I just decided it's, I couldn't yeah. make it. She texted back, oh, that's too bad. I made sure to smell extra good for both of you. Rabia. <laughs> oh my, that's like Hero the Bell. nicest thing. I want to text with Rabia. I'll give her your number. I'll give you her number. Can we have like a group? Oh my God, totally. Text? Totally. But then we get garbage mayor Ed Koch. Ed, Ed Koch is totally garbage, you guys, for a number of reasons. 
I never. Did you hear the outtakes of the last episode where I was like, and then they climbed out of the guitar? No, <laughs> and you're like, nope, nope. <laughs> I was also thinking, like, how many goddamn documentaries does Ed Koch have to do? He's like the Geraldo. He's got to be in every goddamn documentary. So th- then we get in a little bit about like this this like North Manhattan precinct. <laughs> they were like, yeah, it had a little bit of swagger. Oh, okay. <laughs> Basically, they were like the fancy Upper East Side cops. <laughs> like, yeah, you can't be like the fancy police station. Shouldn't they all do the same job right, on the exactly. same level to be like these? Well, they're very prestigious here, at the, <laughs> the North the North precinct on the Upper East Side. All right. I mean, all that like that like late '80s New York thing. Like, uh, I just did like a Robin Bird or like a oh Robin Bird. You guys, if you don't know Robin Bird, is look that shit up. I'm shocked she wasn't in Glory Days in a way. She, that was like such her scene. Anyway, she's still around. She's on Fire Island. Like, she's got a house out there. Oh, I'm sure she is. Yeah. I'm gonna knock this table over. I don't know why I keep kicking it. NYC. Standing room only 